Welcome to the Wildflower Half Hour podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman and in this episode we're going to get to know trees by their winter looks, finding out how one of the most inspiring people in Wildflower Hour went from knowing nothing about plants to knowing apparently everything and discovering what you all found on your New Year plant hunts. First up, it's tempting to think that winter is so grey and bland that there is nothing to observe and take joy in from the plant world, but that's not right. Identifying winter trees is something some botanists find so satisfying that they see it as the highlight of their year. Wildflower Hour co-leader Kevin Widowson is one person who looks forward to the leaves falling from the sky so that he can stare at twigs. I asked him what we could really learn from plants that are asleep. So Kevin, how easy is it really to identify a tree when it doesn't have any leaves on it in winter? Well, actually, it's not as difficult as you might think. I actually find it easier to get down to species level using winter characteristics than I do using going for trees in leaf. I just find the features there are, are more definitive, so you can actually use those features to get down to species level quite easily, actually. So what are those features? There's a few key ones that you really need to become familiar with. So the, the first is bud arrangement. So what we're looking at here is whether the buds are alternate, whether they're opposite, or whether they are sub-opposite. So alternate means that they that there is one bud per node. So where the node is kind of where something happens on the plant. So it's where the leaf would come out. So alternate is one per node. And as you might imagine, it goes one one side, one the other side, one one side, one the other side. Opposite, as you, as you might guess, is where there's two buds per node and they are directly opposite each other. But then there's this third category, which is sub-opposite. And sub-opposite is a tricky one and often trips people up when they're using the keys. Sub-opposite is where there is still two events happening per node, but you actually, they're offset slightly, but in some species it's, it's significant. So things like buckthorn, there can be up to five centimetres difference between one side and the other side, so it might might look to the casual observer as though it's alternate, but in, in fact it's, it's an opposite arrangement. Um, the way that you can tell that, and I've done a bit of research into it, is if you measure the lengths of the internodes, and ordinarily in an alternate structure you will get a kind of similar internode length or shortening internode length as you go towards the terminal bud. But in, in sub-opposite, you'll get a long internode, then a short internode, then a long internode, and then a short internode, and that pattern repeats. So you can kind of use that as a rough rule of thumb to, to gauge whether you're looking at something that's subopposite or not. Ash, Fractionus excelsior, that is the classic one for having subopposite leaf arrangement. In terms of bark, I presume that's quite a, a useful guide as well as to what sort of tree you're looking at. There are um, some species that you can use bark to identify species, but it's actually not a great character and you don't find bark used in the keys. There are some obvious ones like aspen with the diamond lenticels. You can get to genus level with the birches because of the bark coloration, and the. but even then you can get tripped up with whether it's betula pubescence, hairy, um, hairy birch or betula pendula, silver birch and so bark isn't a great character to get down to species level but you can use it to give you a rough guide. I mean other key terms that you would need to use are, are things like terminal bud and whether they are paired, whether they are clustered or whether they are just just singular. So by using that, that can be the next step in your identification. There are different, so clustered buds would be your classic oak or your cherries. They have clusters of buds right at the tip of the, of the twig. 
you can get confused between oaks and cherries because they both have clustered buds at the end. But cherries tend to have clustered buds going on in the, the buds as you go down the stem. So, so just looking at those bud positions can help you identify the plant. Other key terms are the leaf scar. So this is the point of abscission. This is the point where the leaf actually fell from the tree. And you can actually use the shape of it to work out what species you've got. Looking at the vascular bundle scars, which are the scars left by the kind of vascular system of, of the plant where the sugars and the water are exchanged into the leaf. And they are quite prominent on species like um, walnut and, you can, and horse chestnut. That's the, the classic one where the vascular bundles are in a kind of um, horseshoe shape. So they are key terms as well. Other things are the scales on the bud. The scales are the things that protect the embryonic leaf. You'd need to look at the number of scales, what's happening at the edges of those scales, whether they're light or dark or hairy, the position of the scales in relation to the leaf scar and you can use those again to help you separate closely related species so in in the oaks again you will have on quercus robur you will have red bud scales but they will have white margins whereas in something like quercus petraea you will have buff scales that are very hairy so those you can separate out just in winter characteristics pith is a great character can use the the shape of the pith when you go into transection of the twig you can use the shape of it and there's a really beautiful pith shape in the populus genus they are star shaped five angled but occasionally you get them to look star shaped that's a really nice feature to look for whether they're chambered walnut and things like tulip tree they have chambered pith and that's a great identification feature stipule scars whether this is where the edge of the this is around the edge of the leaf scar and where the leaf appendages used to be and they again help you identify the plant. So there's lots of key key features that you need to get familiar with in order to use the keys and get to species level. And you mentioned the oaks, you mentioned Quercus roba, the English oak, but I think a lot of people would be surprised that there's actually more than one oak. We're, we're so used to the archetypal oak with its wavy leaves and acorns. Are there more that grow in this country? Yes, there's quite a lot. So you'll get, you've got obviously got your English oak, you've got turkey oak, you've got Quercus betrayer, you've got pin oak, red oak, there's holm oak which is an evergreen oak and there are, there's probably more that I'm not able to remember at the moment yeah there's a there's a lot of different oaks and again you can actually separate them by the winter characteristics by the bud characteristics for example another separation between Quercus roba and Quercus petraea is the number of scales so Quercus roba has less than 20 scales on the bud whereas Quercus petraea has more than 20 scales per bud that's again another separation that you can make just by using winter characteristics. On Wildflower Half Hour we talk about flowers and we often forget that it's not just the things at our feet that we need to be looking at but we need to be looking up at the trees as well. What are your tips for people who want to go out and start looking up at the trees around them whether it's you know on the street in in a city or along the hedgerows as they drive through the countryside? Top tips would be to try and get up close to the tree. You can use tree shape as a general guide but Again, you're not going to get to species level more often than not by using the shape of the tree, the silhouette. So what you need to do is get up close, try and find a low-hanging branch that has 
a terminal section of, of twig and last year's growth is preferable and just look at those characteristics when I started I used to take a kind of list of the key features that I might need to take note of if it was a fairly common tree I might take a sample to study at home but getting familiar with the terminology and what you're looking for taking good notes taking photographs and really getting as much information as you can from that terminal twig section to make your identification what do you mean by taking a sample we're not talking about snapping a large branch off are we and sort of dragging it home not not snapping a large branch off so as a sample i would only take last year's growth so i mean i mean my my samples tend to be around 15 centimeters long and again you only need one really and i tend to only take on common trees like ash or sycamore or horse chestnut and obviously you, you can only do that with permission so you can't go into your local arboretum and start snipping away at, at the trees but you, you can do it do a lot of it by taking notes and photographs so if there's a particular ornate specimen, then you can do a lot of it by, by photography. And this is quite a good way of using the winter, isn't it? We talked about fruit identification on a previous podcast. This is when everything seems to have disappeared and everything is bare, yet you're saying that we can still actually get out and do botany even when it's terrifyingly cold. Yeah, there's, there's still plenty to be had out there. Winter tree identification keeps me going from mid-November right through till early March, really is the, the, the kind of season for winter tree identification. It's actually my favourite bit of botany, if you like. It's something that, that I look forward to in the winter to kind of get me through before the flowers start coming back again. Why do you look forward to it so much? I really love the technical side of it, that you really have to make these really detailed observations of the of the twig and and trees just have you know something about them that they're they're majestic and i really want to really enjoy getting to know that there are different species of oak and that you can do that in winter and it, I, I find it easier in winter to separate them than i do in this in the summer months so i feel that i can get a really intimate connection with those those plants throughout the winter and as i say it gives you that reason to get out in the cold and and go for walks and try and see what species you can identify. One of the really interesting things about winter tree identification is those technical terms. And one of the things that I found absolutely fascinating is that roses don't have thorns, they have prickles. And there's, in some of the keys, you'll have to separate between thorns, spines and prickles. A thorn is something that is a modified part of the stem and it tends to occur over the leaf scar and is connected to the vascular system. A spine is part of the leaf structure so it's a modified leaf and this sits under the scar and again it's connected to the vascular system. But roses they have prickles and prickles are only connected to the epidermis, the kind of the, the um, outer surface of the twig. They're not connected to the vascular system and you tend to be able to peel them off quite easily. So if you think of a rose thorn, you can actually kind of snap it off and it leaves a little scar of its own there. The classic example of a thorn is your hawthorns, um, unsurprisingly, but things like berberis, they have spines and Robinia pseudocasia, that has spines as well, that false acacia as a tree. So I love those little bits of information that roses don't have thorns. That was Kevin Widdowson on Winter Trees. Kevin is one of the stalwarts of Wildflower Hour and one of the other botanists whose photos and knowledge make 8 to 9pm on a Sunday quite so wonderfully friendly and colourful is David Steer, better known on Twitter as at Barbus59. He's always keen to help new wildflower hunters identify plants and his photos are so beautiful that you'll be surprised to learn that Dave himself was only a beginner a few years ago. We had a chat about his story. 
So Dave, you haven't been a botanist for very many years, have you? When did you start looking at wildflowers? Probably 2013, so just four years ago. And I didn't really start out to look at flowers. It happens because I started going for walks with my partner and then just started noticing things and uh, wondering what they were. And of course, the iconic flowers of the orchids uh, were what drew me in in the first place when I saw some purple flowers in the woods and wondered, what the hell are they? Because they looked so exotic. And um, I later found out they were early purple orchids. I then got a little book from a shop and suddenly realised there were masses and masses of wildflowers and I didn't know any of them. So uh, that's how it started, just a curiosity. But it was a bit like a big eye spy book and I would tick things off as I found them. But then when I got to a bit more into it the the following spring, I realised I couldn't actually identify flowers from the brief descriptions. As you get into it, like anything, you find it's more complicated than you first thought. And that's when I bought my first proper wildflower book, if you like, uh, which was Simon Harrop's Wildflowers, which is a fantastically detailed book with brilliant photographs of every native wildflower and I'd recommend that to anyone starting out. And so you went from not knowing any wildflowers to starting to identify them and then realising it was quite complicated at which point some people do give up and they think oh I'll just try and identify as many as I can from sight and now that I'm looking at all of these technical words like papers and all the others I can't go there I just can't do it. What, What kept you going so that you went from not even knowing what an orchid was to being able to identify them? I think it wasn't at that stage that I came across that. Harrop's is very written in a very easy-to-read language, and um, it will say like a bristle tip instead of a macro, which is everyone knows what a bristle tip is, not everyone knows what a macro is. And there, there is a glossary for some terms he uses. But then I, I then got the Wildflower book by Blamey Fitter and Fitter, which is gives also alien species that escape into the wild, because when you're out looking, you don't realise what's native and what's been introduced or escaped, and you find a flower and it's not in harrops and you think well what the hell is it and fitter and fitter and blamey's book is good at that and i then took it to the next stage bought the um roses wildflower key and that's when it got complicated when i first looked at keys and it had big glossary and used words like cunate and acumate and fillery and all the rest of it and i think it was my overwhelming desire to identify the plant so i, I wasn't in the dark about what i saw that kept me going and to be honest if you take one small bit at a time it's not that difficult it's so when you learn to drive and you have to read the highway code you look at the signs and road markings you think oh that's gobbledygook if you've never been a driver before but after a while it becomes second nature and it's the same with wildflower terms it's all been self-taught but i would say that i had a big boost by joining the kent botanical recording group going on a couple of their field meetings and you then you're then welcomed as a beginner and you look at what's going on what they do and uh, feel free on these field trips to just ask what's that for example a marsh thistle how do you know that's a marsh thistle and not one of the other thistles and they would take great pains to tell you all the differences and uh, thistles come to mind because that's what I covered with them on my first field trip and after that field trip I could identify all the thistles just by a quick glance I didn't have to take detailed photographs and look them all up in the books it was so obvious the differences and I, I can't stress that going on field trips is such a quick route into it and that's what got me um, my knowledge level up a lot. And you're now a recorder yourself aren't you? 
aren't you? you every weekend you return to wildflower hour with many many new records that that you found in your area just explain what being a recorder actually involves follow on from joining the botanical group was joining the botanical society of the british isles or bsbi and one of their projects is to map the entire united kingdom at one kilometer grid squares which are called monads and try and record all the plants you can identify in that one kilometre grid square and um, Kent's been quite well done but it hasn't been done properly for 20 years so by recording now we can look at the results in 2020 and compare them to all the previous data sets and work out what's in trouble and what's doing well and for the ones that are in trouble uh, especially on nature reserves and areas of conservation management they can put in plans to protect those species that are doing badly and that's why I do the recording. And what have you been surprised by in terms of what you found when you're out recording? Just about everything. Uh, most counties now have got a rare plant register. Kent's got a particularly good one on the BSBI website and it's it's always nice to keep a lookout for those and put a record in for, for where you find them. Of course, being rare plants, you don't often find them. But uh, what's been quite amazing is finding unknown alien species in the wild, such as a pickerback plant, which is a garden plant. And I found it in the middle of a woodland that had been recently coppiced and it was a county first record. And that's really nice when you find something for the first time. Other things that are really surprising is when, for example, I found navel wort at Scotney Castle. Now that's a plant that's very common in the West and very rare in the southeast of England. And it's like, it reminds me a bit when it's in flower of something like a lupine, a big tall flowering spike with like dull green tubular flowers poking out all around the stem. Uh, and little round penny wort type leaves and... They only grow in walls and on rocky ledges and things like that, which is why they're found more in the west. And I found one at Scotney growing out of a, a very old beech tree. And I, I checked with the estate manager and they hadn't planted it and could only assume it coming on people's feet as seeds. So things like that are always a surprise. And every time I go out, I find something new or whether it's plants or wildlife, and it's always amazing. And you're based in Kent. Where are some of the best sites for people to go wildflower hunting around you? It depends on the time of year. During the um, early summer, I'd say without doubt, go to the uh, Kent Wildlife Trust Nature Reserves where you can find 90% of the orchids in Kent. Areas of outstanding natural beauty like the White Cliffs of Dover is a fantastic walk managed by the National Trust. Loads and loads of wildflowers. But in the winter at this time of year, I'd head for brownfield sites and road verges. You'd be amazed at how many wildflowers there are on, on, in these places. And I think it's because the environment they're growing in is tough. And so if they get an opportunity to flower like a mild spell, they will. Whereas in nature reserves, they're not so tough, they're well managed and they know that they just have to flower once a year and that's it. That's my my theory. <laughs> what's your favourite wildflower find that you've ever had? What's the one that's really, really precious? There's so many. It's, it's a bit like saying to a kid going into a sweet shop, what's your favourite sweet? I think my star find of 2017 has to be the starry saxifrage, which was in Wales and I found it quite by accident, wasn't looking for it. I wasn't well at the time, I was on holiday in Snowdonia. I just stopped the car and because I was well could only walk around by the car and there was this boggy area and there was these beautiful um, white starry saxifrages which have uh, yellow blobs which are honey guides for the bees and insects and pinky red uh, middles they're absolutely stunning flowers and I advise listeners to look up a picture of a starry saxifrage and they're absolutely amazing what difference has hunting for wildflowers knowing the difference between plants that you previously 
didn't even notice. What what difference has that made to you? It's made me aware of my environment much more than I was before. I've always cared for the environment and back in the 70s I joined Greenpeace to save the whales and had some limited success from that but most of my adult life I was just walking around as I said in one of my blogs with my eyes wide shut and by opening my eyes to what's around me and actually naming things so you know what they are it's like a whole new voyage of discovery a bit like being a child again seeing things for the first time and seeing the wonder of it all. It's amazing. That was David Steer and if you don't already follow him on Twitter he's there as at Barbus59. David was talking about his favourite flower finds and we've been asking wildflower hunters to share what their favourite flower was that they found in 2017. Lydia Messiah shared hers on Instagram and is now having it turned into a beautiful botanical illustration by the artist Holly Crosley. Here's the story behind her wasp orchid. Hello my name's Lydia Messiah and it was my wildflower find last year in Bristol that won Wildflower Hour's favourite find competition. I haven't lived in Bristol very long and I must admit I wasn't keen on moving to the city from the Mendips in Somerset but since living here my eyes have been opened to the diversity of wildflowers that can be found in the city. In spring 2017 I began exploring the green spaces easily accessible from Bristol Centre. I was motivated by the need to exercise a new collie puppy as well as a rekindled interest in wildflowers. A wildflower ID site and the hashtag wildflowerhour on Twitter made me determined to see more and improve my identification skills. Following a tip-off from someone on a wildflower site and with help on ID, I went to Ashton Court, a park on Bristol's outskirts, and there saw thousands acres of cream-winged orchids in every shade of pink. From that moment, I was inspired to discover more orchids. Research suggested the Avon Gorge as a place for fly orchids. Since I'd never seen them and they looked pretty intriguing, I headed down to the gorge one morning with my puppy, Poppy, camera phone and my 14-year-old son, who was enjoying exploring too. For a few minutes, we searched along the busy towpath and up slippery inclines of the gorge cliffs, looking for likely spots. Joggers passed by, families on bicycles and other people walking their dogs. The excitement of the hunt even had my son motivated to look. And quite soon we did discover an unusual plant, which was definitely an orchid. It certainly wasn't a fly orchid, however. And looking at it closely, I could see it wasn't a bee orchid either, which I'd seen once before. A bee orchid gone wrong, perhaps? or a hybrid between a fly and a bee orchid which I'd read existed somewhere. Puzzled, I took photos, and my son helped since the flower was on an awkward slope. At home, I posted the pictures on a wildflower site and waited for answers. In seconds, notifications came pinging in. A wasp orchid, which was a subspecies of a bee orchid. Where had I seen it? Several keen orchid hunters admitted that they'd never seen one, while various other botanists decided to go and look for it themselves. It was all extremely thrilling for a novice orchid hunter to have such brilliant beginner's luck, and to find something yourself rather than to be taken to a site and shown a rarity is so much more of a buzz. As a footnote to the wasp orchid find, we did actually discover the fly orchids on that walk as well. As I said, it was quite a busy recreational spot for Bristol people. My 14-year-old son was pretty impressed by both types of orchid and enjoyed photographing them. I have to admit, though, that he thought the fly orchids were much cooler. And following these finds, I went on to see the huge show of common spotted orchids at Ashton Court in their thousands again. 
In one meadow at Ashton Court, in a particularly rich wildflower patch, I saw tway blades for the first time. The downs in Bristol are another brilliant sight. I've seen bee orchids there, and at the end of the summer, autumn ladies' tresses. That's just my orchid highlights of the city in one year. I wonder what I could see there next year. On the day I found the wasp orchid, I was hugely excited by my find. And when my oldest son, who's 19, returned from work, I proudly showed him my wasp orchid pictures. Ah, he said, I've seen one of those too when I was volunteering at Slimbridge and doing some surveying. Very nice. So, so much my big find. But it is great that two of my sons can identify unusual orchids. So at least I'm passing on my enthusiasm. That was Lydia Messiah. And finally, more than a thousand of you took part in this year's New Year plant hunt with the Botanical Society of Britain and Ireland. It aims to record which plants are flowering and where at the turn of each year. Chiara Sugru was one of the coordinators of the plant hunt and she told me what you've all found. Do lots of people take part in this New Year plant hunt or don't most people just want to stay at home where it's warm? So this year we estimate over a thousand people took part in the New Year plant hunt, uh, which is amazing. But you know, initially I, I was sceptical about going outside in the cold and identifying plants that were flowering. But it's something that I've really, really enjoyed. So this is my second year volunteering with the New Year plant hunt. So I'm on support team processing data, chatting to people on Twitter and going out and identifying plants with my uh, local botany group. But it's something I definitely recommend doing, going out for three hours and seeing what plants are blooming, uh, either with your botany group or just on your uh, walk to work or, you know, taking the dog for a walk. And the support and the encouragement when you tweet to the BSBI from plant lovers out there is brilliant. If you're unsure of what you found, you can tweet a picture at the BSBI using the hashtag near plant hunt and someone will come along and uh, help you identify it. So it's a great opportunity for plant lovers out there, you know, whether you're a beginner or you're really experienced to kind of share your knowledge and your passion for wildflowers. And what's the purpose of it from the BSBI's point of view? Is it just to encourage people to get out hunting for flowers or is there a more scientific purpose behind it? So the aim of the new plant hunt is to find out about the differences in times when wildflowers are blooming in response to changes in long-term weather patterns. So this is the seventh year that we've been uh, running the new year plant hunt and the data that we've received is invaluable. So textbooks about 50 years ago said we'd only find 20 to 30 wildflowers blooming in midwinter, whereas we're actually finding over 500 species And this is simply because plant lovers have been going outside uh, over the new year and identifying flowers that are in bloom. So arguably these textbooks need to be rewritten. And the only reason we know this is because of everyone that's taken part. And so you're still analysing the data that's been sent in for this year. But what sort of vague picture are you picking up so far? So the five most commonest plants that have been recorded in the new year plant hunt is the daisy, groundsel, dandelions annual meadow grass and gorse and this is really similar to the year before at least half you know maybe two-thirds of the plants we're seeing in bloom are what we consider to be autumn stragglers 
So these are plants that would have a peak flowering time around July, August, and they'll keep flowering till you know September, October when they're zapped by the frost. But what we're finding is that some are still blooming in places in January, which is really interesting. About 10 to 15% of the plants we're flowering are spring flowers that are blooming early. So we've had records of a sweet violet found in Suffolk in flower, and we've also had records of a three-cornered leek, which is an invasive species, in flower as well. We also have records submitted to us of plants that you would consider typical summer species. So Louise Marsh, who is the BSBI communications officer, was on your Wildflower Hour podcast back in November. And she said the weirdest or the most surprising find that she's ever come across was a cornflower in bloom in Leicester. So we went back this year for the New Year plant hunt and lo and behold we found it in flower. But we've also had records of the red hot poker so seen in the Isle of Wight in bloom. So this is a plant which is native to Africa and it's great for butterflies and bees because it produces loads of nectar. But I think one plant that is of particular interest to us is the narrow-leaved ragwort. So it's a recent arrival from South Africa and the reason that we're interested in it is because we're seeing that it's spreading northwards. So it's quite a good indicator of how plants respond in to changes the long-term weather patterns. But we wouldn't know this information if it wasn't for all the plant lovers out there that are taking part in the New Year plant hunt. And can you get a picture of whether plants are being affected by climate change in this country from the New Year plant hunt? I often get people tweeting at me saying, I found this flower, it shows that we have climate change, but it, it is a bit more complicated than that, isn't it? Yeah, so it's a bit more complicated than that and it's simply because we need longer term data. So this is the seventh year for the New Year plant hunt and we are seeing changes in the plant's responses to weather but what we can't say is, is this because of climate change? And in order to do this, we we need volunteers. So the more people that are taking part in the survey and the longer we're collecting this data for, we'll have a better understanding of how plants are responding to changes in long-term weather patterns across Britain and Ireland. And for the people who took part in the New Year plant hunt for the first time, or for whom the New Year plant hunt was actually the first wildflower hunt they'd really gone on, what tips have you got for them to move on and get more into botany more generally? So I definitely recommend joining your uh, local botany group. So if you go on the Botanical Society of Britain Ireland website and go under local botany, you'll be able to see you know, who your nearest group is. And I recommend going out with them as, as much as possible to you know, be very active and very involved. And the reason being is you know, you'll be able to share your knowledge and your experience. And it's a really enjoyable like day out. So to get out and pick up some new skills that you might not have had a couple hours ago, I would highly recommend it. The BSBI website also has lots of helpful hints and tips. But I think personally for me, you know, making sure you have a nice warm coat, so I'm always cold. Getting yourself a hand lens so you can see all the finer detail. Buying any plant book you can find. And definitely a flask so you can have lots of tea when you're going on your walks would be the things that I would recommend. And, you know, go out and have fun because it is, it's a great experience and you pick up so many different skills and you learn so quickly. And you can share that knowledge with your family and your friends. And it's you know, I've only been doing it for the past two years and it's safe to say that I'm 
hooked. <laughs> that was Kiara Sugru on the New Year plant hunt and it's so worth joining the BSBI if you want to get a little bit more serious about botany. Wildflower Hour also supports and promotes the work of Plant Life, the Wildlife Trusts and the Wildflower Society and you can find links to all these wonderful organisations on our website. Don't forget to join in with Wildflower Hour every Sunday between 8 and 9pm on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram and happy hunting until the next episode of this podcast in a fortnight's time. Thanks for listening.